0: Hello, my name is Ian Hawkins, welcome to The Y Word, the show that gets under the skin of entrepreneurs, business people, artists, all kinds of folks, people who've changed the world in some way and tries to find out what it is that makes them tick.
1: Coming up shortly, you're going to hear this. I think for me, I'm just far more important, I met, the, I met chief executives, a whole bunch of potential investors and the question I asked and I looked them in their eyes was, are you backing us to drive renewables globally or is this greenwash? And based upon those answers, I chose the best investor. And I'm really proud of it. And our job as humans is not to live efficient lives, it's to live interesting lives. It's to live lives where we learn and where surprises happen and, and where we can do great things. Where I could personally make a bigger difference to everything I cared about was through business, not politics. Because with business, you know, with politics, you can get a lot of votes without making a difference. In business, every customer we win enables us to make a difference. Octopus Energy is a unicorn.
0: That is a startup business with a value of over 1 billion pounds. In five years, it's acquired a number of other energy companies, 1.5 million business and domestic customers, and uh, several recommendations from which. So I'm joined by Greg Jackson, the founder and the CEO. Greg, welcome to The Y Word. Hey, how are you doing Ian? Nice to meet you. It's very nice to meet you too. So lots of achievements there, Greg, and I wonder which of those you are the most proud of?
1: Actually, probably none of those. Um, We, very early in our history as a company, uh, identified the way in which energy pricing typically led to a lot of customers getting ripped off more than they realized and um, it's genuinely exploitative of of customers. We did a load of work analyzing the data, sharing it with journalists and politicians. And ultimately, I think that was a high contributor, perhaps even instrumental, in bringing around the UK energy price cap, even more than the pride of having everything we've done for our own customers and our team, and hopefully for for beginning to tackle climate change. You know, that, that price cap has saved 11 million households on average £100 a year each, that's over a billion pounds of savings, often to the people who need it most. And I think um, that, for me, is probably the biggest thing we've achieved or at least been a a, a big part of.
0: Often when we talk about brands and businesses, we talk about the importance of having a strong mission statement. So is that what drove you to create the company in the first
1: place? Totally. I think the, the privilege you have as a startup is you don't have to try and retrofit a mission statement or a purpose to whatever it is you happen to be doing to please your shareholders. In our case, we were able to say, this is what we want to do, and then go and find shareholders and investors that would back us in that mission. In common with a lot of disruptors and startup companies, we're able to begin with a really strong sense of purpose. And although over time we learn more and we develop, that is the spine off which everything else grows.
0: I'm very interested in the world of green energy and you're such a octopus is a big investor in green energy do you really think businesses should be the ones that are responsible for the whole
1: planet that's a great question you know um I'm very personally in, when i was in my late 20s i stood to be a counselor in an election because i cared about local issues i cared about big issues uh, and i lost by 23 votes that was the difference between being able to do some good i hope and not being able to do anything at all and i think at that point i realized that where i could personally make a bigger difference So everything I cared about was through business, not politics, because with business, you know, politics, you can get a lot of votes without making a difference. In business, every customer we win enables us to make a difference. That's not to say that one is better than the other, but business definitely gives us the right, the freedom and the ability to pursue a path, ask people to back us. And if they back us and support us, then we can make a big difference.
0: You're you're spot on, Greg, because I was thinking when Greta Thunberg talked to the UN, I thought, she's great, but she's shouting at the wrong people. If she was talking to some CEOs, they'd actually make a difference. Whereas all of these politicians, anything they agree to now is out the window come their next election. You know, I'm
1: blown away when I meet CEOs. I think even the CEOs of the companies that we compete against and criticize, as individuals and as humans, the majority of them actually listen to people like Greta and want to make a difference. I think the next stage in societal development is to enable companies uh, to convince their investors to let them pursue paths that, you know, I mean, public companies are so often, you know, hide by quarterly profits. And in the long run, that actually isn't good for shareholders either, because continuous short-term optimisation to hit the next quarter's targets, stops them investing in the future. And I think that applies on the finances of the business, it applies for customer service, and it applies for actually the difference they make strategically to society. Uh, You know, if there's one thing we can do, it's really uh, as citizens to help uh, companies and investors pursue the path that the great people who work in them probably want to do, but often the market structures make hard.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the customer service side. We talk a lot about putting the customer first. So you started by saying the customer deserves a fairer deal, and you're also very strong on customer service. So those two things go together for you.
1: Yeah, look, uh, looking after customers is far more than just a sort of uh, an important business strategy. Fundamentally, in sectors like ours, it's part of justifying the way our society works. Why have voters in so many countries kind of ended up feeling disenfranchised, alienated, perhaps even you know, voting for anything other than the above. And it's because the system doesn't work for them. And the system doesn't work for them, not just in government, but in in all these sectors like energy. Everybody has to have energy. So if you're getting your energy from a company that don't answer the phone, and when they do answer it, they don't, you know, they hang onto your money and they try and rip you off. And you switch from that company to another one that's just the same, it's disenfranchising, not just for your relationship with that company, but that sector, and that sector is part of society. And this happens in energy, and it happens in banking, and it happens in, you know, increasing things like travel and transport. It happens in all the places we, as citizens, have to touch large organizations. And if we don't fix that, the system that has worked so well for us over decades and centuries
0: is a threat. I have to ask you, because you've seen Octopus is quite a disruptive company, and I understand the banking disruption fairly well. I, I understand less about how energy is disrupted. So, so what are you doing to change the the whole of the energy industry?
1: Yeah, so look, uh, the way the energy system is built, um, it, it dates back a hundred years. Here in the UK, it's built around the idea: it was one hundred and thirty coal-fired power stations, and uh, you know, a big national grid to ship the electricity from near the coal fields where we typically generate it to where people live. Uh, essentially, customers are treated as off-takers. You know, we're, we're the lucky recipients of what comes out of those wires. Uh, and we need to invert that so that customers are empowered to be getting the energy they want. And that the companies here don't just pass on the cost, but actually relentlessly drive costs down the way that happens in other retail markets, you know, like you know, sort of supermarkets and stuff. The brutal competition there. Has driven down costs, driven up quality, and increased the range we've all got available. We need to see that in energy, and we need it now because how long have we got? Energy is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. In fact, if we electrify energy in the UK and make it renewable, that'll deal with something like 78% of the emissions from our economy. All right, and uh, and yet for decades, certainly you know for many years, we've been told uh, you know about the green taxes and cut the green crap, and it's all nonsense. If instead, we start reflecting the realities of a renewable system, so that when the wind blows and the sun shines, people get bonkers cheap electricity, that's what a customer-focused system would do. And yet, because customers have been at the end of the chain, not the beginning of it, that hasn't happened. And that's the change we need to make. Do you think businesses like yours have to engage in social a lot more to to sort of
0: build those relationships with customers in, in the places where the customers feel more comfortable?
1: Yeah, I think we do. And I think that's something we learned actually. So when we started the business like I learned a lot of business at can company called Procter and Gamble, a big kind of global consumer goods company. And Procter and is famous for brand management. And what P&G would do is work out what they're going to sell to customers, then broadcast it. Like the traditional model is that the customer service operation is like a big thick wall around your castle to stop customers getting near what, you know, what goes on inside. And we realized actually that that's that's going to change. It's got like a perforated, it's like a sieve that connect customers to the people who can help them internally. So, you know, if a customer gets in touch about the website design, we don't send them a fob off. We actually put them in touch with the person in charge of website design, who will tell them why it is the way it is, but who will also listen and understand what we could do differently. And I hope that's what you see when you talk about the contactability. It's not just standard customer service issues, it's anything people want to talk about. I think the
0: problem with with going online, though, is that, you know, it only takes one of your customer service people to have a bad day. And then that response is there forever. We live in a culture where those things do live on. And is, do you think there's not a risk for companies when they do something on social media, that in the future, people will look back on it and go, no, you got that wrong. And they make you pay for it further down the line.
1: Yeah, I do, I think um, it's a real, it's, it's fear of that, that often holds companies back. And I think what we have to do is, first of all, be quite brave. And know that, you know, for every 10 steps forward, there'll be one back. Know that sometimes something will be blown out of proportion and come back and haunt you. But that the positive that comes from, from being brave enough to do it in the first place will vastly outweigh that. I think it helps being a business with the sense of purpose and mission you talked about at the beginning, because you know, our team are not trying to defend the indefensible. What they're doing is talking about stuff we can be incredibly proud of. And if occasionally we talk about it wrongly or we screw up and there's something we're not proud of, hey. <laughs> Let's be honest about that because that honesty and candor is, you know, most people understand that and give you credit for being honest about it.
0: Okay, Greg, a Slightly, slightly trickier question here for you, which is about the Friends of the Earth dropped their support fairly recently. And I just wanted to know what the story was. I, I know you parted on, Fairly good terms, and I just wanted to to cover that.
1: Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it really, you know, obviously a shame. But you've got to remember, first of all, there's about 60 energy companies in the UK, and only three of them have ever had that support. Now, there's no story about the 57 that never had it in the first place, right? In our case, uh, Friends of the Earth were very clear that they absolutely support what we're doing to make energy greener. And no company, I don't think, is doing as much to change the system here in the UK and then globally to do that. Uh, but when we took investment for an Australian company, in fact, Australia's biggest energy company, uh, I blogged about the fact that they were traditionally and still in fossil fuels, although they're on a journey, and we're going to help move that journey, taking from a browner energy mix to a greener one. Our technology will really help with that. And actually, really importantly, when I spoke to investors from around the world, uh, they were the ones that uh, most backed our mission and gave me the freedom to take the investment they're putting in, hundreds of millions of pounds of investment to make energy greener here and everywhere. But I totally understand that for friends of the earth, you know, some of their members would you know, not like the fact that we've taken that money. Um, I think for me, I'm just far more important. I met, the, I met chief executives, a whole bunch of potential investors. And the question I asked when I looked them in their eyes was, are you backing us to drive renewables globally or is this greenwash? And based upon those answers, I chose the best investor. And I'm really proud
0: of it. What well, do you think the environmental movement really is starting to gain some traction? Now, can we be positive about
1: our planet's future? Hey, look, I joined Greenpeace when I was 16. Uh, by the way, I joined because I thought I was going to get invited to climb oil rigs and you know uh, put banners across refineries. What you've always found is that campaigns are ahead of the curve, and society follows. So I don't think it's the, they've gained traction now. I think they had traction then, but once they get victories, then. They move to the next one, quite rightly, continually pushing society to be better. I do think, uh, you know, um, that Greta Thunberg's kind of campaigning has been the recent reignition of a lot of the debate. But, you know, go I urge people to watch Al Gore's film, an inconvenient sequel. I think what's really changed now in energy, on top of all of that, is economics. Thanks to some pioneering work about a decade ago, especially in the UK, a few other countries, We've discovered that renewables, when we invest in them properly, can be cheaper than fossil fuels, right? And actually, if our system was arranged correctly today, renewables would absolutely be the only place investors were investing. It would be our energy system. We're just going to make those changes to, to the way in which the system works quickly to accommodate that. But renewables are cheaper, and they're getting cheaper every year. And we're incredibly lucky as a society, and again, probably driven by some of these pressures, but great businesses and great entrepreneurialism. So when a house buys an electric car, it can literally fill up its battery with a week's worth of uses when the wind's blowing. So those kind of worries people used to have that renewables aren't always there actually fits perfectly with an electric vehicle where you've got a lot of discretion about when you charge it. And that's going to unlock uh, cheaper electricity, cheaper generation. And that in turn will unlock the ability to use electric heating. and and green electric heating to replace, you know, gas, is now going to happen, driven by economics. That's so exciting.
0: As you can hear, Greg is absolutely evangelical about this stuff. Octopus Energy is a company that's innovative and disruptive in all kinds of ways, much like Greg himself. So I did want to find out whether this was representing what he was all about. How much do you
1: think Octopus is a company that's truly in your image? So I think one of the great um, truisms is that startups tend to reflect their founders and they do so particularly in tech, Uh, but they do so for as long as that founder is around and often for a long time after. You can look at Oracle, you know, it is Larry Ellison writ large. You know, sometimes I've heard people talk, not about us actually, oh, I'm sure it will happen, but people come into companies that were founder built and founder led and talk about like, obviously what we've got to do is reduce the dependence on the founder, we've got to kind of, you know, you know, kind of reform our strategy. There's a high risk of throwing the baby out with the bath water. Because it's not the founders are perfect, They're con- they are consistent. Right. So I was talking earlier about, you know, the ability you've got as a startup to, to start based around your values, your mission, your purpose, not to retrofit them. Typically, that's embodied in the founding team. And so, so with us, I think the way I often think about it is there's a big chunk of me. There's then a big chunk of, of some of my co-founders and the early senior team. And then actually everyone who joins is adding a bit to it. And it's like, you know, the, the machine then carries kind of a little bit of everyone who's building it. But the core is right back to that founding time.
0: So let's let's have a think. So some of the other businesses you've done, you've you've helped doctors and consultants, but you've used technology. So would you describe yourself as a techie?
1: So I left school when I was sixteen to write video games. Tech, beginning is still absolutely a defining part of how I see the world.
0: What is it about about that that that, that idea of going off and making writing
1: your own code? What what is it that why is that your first love? It's actually a really creative process. I sometimes sitting thing, it's a bit like knitting you know, you look at when someone's knitted something, how did you turn some space and a strand of thread into a cardigan or a hat or a scarf? And, you know, with all the designs, Uh, I think software is, uh, you know, a really nice kind of example of that. How do you kind of put the spaceship on the screen and make it controllable by a player. Software does two things incredibly well. One of them, it does things very quickly. So some software gets written to be run very infrequently, but when it is run, it can do stuff you know a million times faster than a human or whatever, the 1000000000 of an idea. And the other thing is um, it's very replicable. Some software, uh, you, know, you build it and you can create a million copies absolutely without cost. So we see both of those examples of tech changing our world around us.
0: But you like using technology to solve problems it seems you are you are taking that that thread and turning it into the jumper where you see you know
1: it needs to be knitted Look, if you look at an an industry like energy when we first started looking at this sector companies you know have massive overheads to do a really simple job you know like the energy retailers supplying two products gas and electricity through a pipe and a wire into your house there's already a meter there and we've probably got a standing order or a direct debit to pay your bills it's a lot easier than amazon's job yet the overheads of the energy companies were far higher than those of amazon so you know, what was the difference What was tech and it's that the vast majority of the work that these companies do really can be run by forgive the phrase but you know so sort of, well can be run by robots and so let the robots do what they do well and then actually the people that work in the company and do what people do well which is speak to and look after customers create new ideas drive change you know like really work hard to innovate to make the system greener and cheaper for everyone so the the job of people is to you know kind of define the the business and build the robots and the job of the robots is to do all the stuff that frankly you know is not motivating fulfilling Work for humans and that humans don't do well.
0: Is this ultimately your thing, though, Greg? Are you, are you constantly frustrated by the world and you think, God, we just need to, if only everything works smoother and work better? My favourite phrase is about sharpening the axe. Are you, a, are you an axe sharpener? Is
1: this your goal? Is this your dream? No, it's quite funny actually. You're probably almost the opposite. Out of a bit of creative chaos comes invention of new, better, more interesting, fun things. Like our job as humans is not to live efficient lives, it's to live interesting lives is to live lives where we learn and where surprises happen and where we can do great things it's it's, i don't imagine many many of the great artists of the world had their alarm clock set for 7am they get out of bed They'd spend 22 minutes eating a croissant, and then they'd sit down to paint. They'd paint till 11.30. 11. I mean, it's not how it would work, right? So I, I don't think we'll create great businesses and a great future for humanity if we try and make all of our efficiency.
0: We're coming out of lockdown at the moment, and, and I think you're right, because we're all told about if only we had more time to do stuff. Some of us have been given all the time in the world, and we haven't got fit. We haven't learned a new musical instrument. We've got sad and a bit fat, some of us. So. Put the two together.
1: The... There are jobs, like the, the issuing of builds for an energy company, of course that should be efficient, but the time it frees up, the human time it frees up from doing those mechanistic things. You know, the ability to then do what what is motivating and enjoyable for humans, you know, creating and, and, and collaborating, and communicating. That's that's what we should be using the efficiency to create the space for. Now, way, and people shouldn't be beating themselves up the about not having music instrument and everything. I mean, at the end of the day, um, a lot of people have had time with their family, they've got to know themselves a bit better. I've got off the treadmill for a while, literally by the sound of it. And um, you know, the opportunity to um, do that for a period of time has been helpful. I really do hope that we learn from that, but also that you now I suspect now this is very much a moment in time conversation. You know, we do need to get back some of the lives we used to have as well. Otherwise, we're going to have all kinds of mental health anxiety, loneliness, demotivation. So you know, humans need humans, and I really hope we get back to that soon as well. Sure,
0: that's a nice thing to hear from a tech person. Human needs humans. It leads on to my next question, which is: You've sat at the top of a number of businesses now. Do you see yourself as as a natural leader, you know, out in front, or do you see yourself as pushing people towards, you know, enabling people to reach a common goal?
1: I definitely have a view of how, for example, and energy, how energy can be organised better to deliver greener energy faster and cheaper. Over the years, I've got older and braver about sticking my neck out and just saying that and then collaborating with great people who will tell me where I've got it wrong and that enables us to improve that view and that vision. We've got some brilliant people on our team that do that and we work together to say like, how do we solve these problems? And then I guess my job is twofold. Externally is to be a spokesperson for all of the things that the team are brilliantly innovating, creating and delivering. And the second is inwardly really to create an environment in which people are free to be brilliant. And I think most organizations don't do as well as that as they could. You know, in job ads, they look for creative, smart, problem solving, driven people. And then those people start work and end up in constraining structures that actually, you know, they're either following lots of process and procedure. um, They haven't got access to the tools that enable them to do their jobs. Kind of all of the motivation that made them get that job in the first place starts to be whittled away by whether it be corporate politics or a lack of ambition. And, And so I think for me, actually really helping open up and unleash the talent and skills of people is far more effective than trying to tell them what to do.
0: Greg Jackson, before I release you back into the, into the octopus tank, um, you're allowed anybody you like from history, alive, dead, fictional or not, you can have a business lunch with them. It has to be a business lunch. You have to progress your career. Greg Jackson, who would you have for your business lunch?
1: I'm afraid they're still alive, and it's really obvious. And it would be Elon Musk. Because I think for any of us who think we're busy, look at a guy who's business, Tesla. Has made the electric vehicle revolution at least 10 years faster, possibly more. And off the back of that is spanning a revolution in gigafactories for batteries and everything else. And by the way, also while they're at it, making the cars drive themselves, which is just an added extra. That wasn't actually required for electrification. And by the way, that's just one of two CEO jobs, because the one is SpaceX, which launches rockets for I mean was it was eight or ten times cheaper than 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 previous. And then they land themselves on drone ships. And by the way, that's only two of the jobs, because then you've got the boring company. And you've got Hyperloop, and you've got um, uh, the uh, solar business. That is serious time management, and that is serious ability to drive frontiers bravely. I think time management is the thing. But can I ask, Greg, do you have a Tesla? I do. Yeah. In fact, I'm on my second. This is a space age car that drives itself right it doesn't create any pollution it's virtually silent if you care about such things it'll be 0 to 60 in two and a half seconds
0: Greg thank you very much indeed for your your time today it's been lovely talking to you
1: you too Ian it's been an absolute pleasure
0: well thank you so much to my guest today Greg Jackson and also dear listener thank you to you I realise your time is at a premium your attention even more so so I really appreciate it if you want to get in touch please do be my guest. You'll find my LinkedIn details very close to wherever you found this podcast. It'll probably be on the show notes if you're using a platform, or it'll be underneath in the comments if you are watching on YouTube. If you know of anybody who you think would be a brilliant guest, drop me a line, let me know. Let me know you're from the podcast. It just makes more sense to me if I know that you've come from here. Well, that's all from me. I'm Ian Hawkins. Have a great time.
1: Till the next time.